Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erica and I'm solo. Well, not exactly solo. Over the next few weeks, we will be treating you guys with rotating guests because Amy and Aaron have abandoned me. <laughs> and um, our first guest is Nora Loretto, who will be guest hosting this week. Hi, Nora. Hey. So Nora is, if you guys don't know, a columnist with the Washington Post and the National Observer, a prolific tweeter, um, and all-around badass. <laughs> Welcome. Thanks for having oh, me. So I forgot to tell you guys that Nora co-hosts her own podcast with Sandy Hudson of Black Lives Matter fame. And uh, called Sandy and Nora Talk Politics. When does it come out, Nora? We try to put our episodes out every Tuesday. And this week it might be a bit later because I have been more busy today than normal. Yes, because you're here. (laughs) So we thank you for spending some time with us and talking all the trash that happened this week. Oh, thanks for the invitation. So appreciated. (laughs) (laughs) Happy to have you. Okay. So um, first off, today is today is Game of Thrones Day, and Game of Thrones Season 8 will be restarting tonight at 9 p.m. I will be live tweeting from the Bad and Bitchy podcast, Twitter, pod, Twitter account, um, at Bad and Bitchy, and um, yeah, it starts at 9 I think everybody's been li- like waiting for this because it's been two years since season seven. I am all caught up. How are you? Oh, yeah. Will you be watching, Nora? I, I'm not going to be watching tonight because I have to admit, I don't have any kind of TV. <laughs> like I don't have Netflix or whatever, anything. And so my ability to watch is really related to how many people are uploading it and then downloading it. <laughs> yes. So you will be torrenting it, basically? Oh, yes. I mean, I, I think that my partner will be torrenting it in the next 20 minutes because it's got to come out in like Europe or some shit, right? Oh, fuck yeah. Right, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. You're telling me I could be watching Game of Thrones right now. I mean, I don't think you should be because we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. <laughs> yeah, but I, I just I said to him, I was like, hey, like it should have been like we got seven hours of like torrent action to be able to get in on. So, um. My plan is to watch tomorrow night. We will see. All right. Well, the Bad and Bitchy um, Twitter account will be pure spoilers. Yeah, so I'm going to so be mo- muting that. Yeah, you you, <laughs> sure. you need to mute us. Like, seriously. Yeah. So um, now I think that there is a perspective on this show that's been missing. The intersectional feminist perspective that I haven't really seen um, I like I've seen specific show episodes or um, or maybe like character assessments that kind of sort of talk about it. But I personally have not seen a true intersectional feminist take, which is what I'm hoping to provide tonight. Nice. Yeah. Anyway, is there anything you're looking forward to, like any character or anything like that? I mean, I've, I I get very into 
stuff. And so I try in with Game of Thrones, I'm really trying to distance myself from what I feel about the characters. I really don't want Tyrion to die first. I really want him to be I don't I don't actually care if he's on the Iron Throne or anything, but I'd I need to have Tyrion for the rest of the episodes. There were I don't know if you remember in the last two seasons, there were a lot of like really boring and cheesy love subplots. Yeah. I I need those to die tonight. Okay. <laughs> I need everyone who's in love to lose their love so that there's no more cheesy love subplots for the rest of the, <laughs> of the episode. <laughs> everyone. I need Samuel Tarly to die. I, I need fucking Grey Worm to die. I need... Like, <laughs> who are the other ones? I mean, like, like Cersei and Jamie, like, they totally both can be launched into the sun tonight. That would be fine. <laughs> So that's where I'm at. Cersei is basically second wave feminism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like she's like, I have to act like a man to get anywhere. Yeah, including with that the hair. That is the whole thing. Well, what what the fuck? Like, so she cuts her hair four fucking years ago and it hasn't grown yet? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't buy that shit. She liked long hair before. Are we supposed to believe that it's only been six weeks since that yeah, like, happened? Yeah, like, where the fuck is the bob? Right. Where is the bob? No, exactly. No, she's like, whoa, now that I had my hair cut off to be shamed, I fucking like this. It's like, I don't yeah. buy that. No way. And, and did you see her minions even cut their hair? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, bitch, what? Exactly. <laughs> I'm not buying it. It's like, Arya's got, like, short hair because she's owning it. Like, Cersei, I'm not believing it. It's... I mean, unless you know a dragon's going to burn it off, that would be interesting. <laughs> you know what I want? I want Arya to cut Cersei's throat. I really That's what I really want. As who, though? Because oh, Arya's not going to be oh. there as herself. <laughs> Can you imagine if she came back as, like, Tywin and cut her throat? Fuck, that would be... Now we're talking. Okay. Yeah. This is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or even... Okay, see? Do you see why we need an intersectional take on this motherfucker? <laughs> well, if you want to get intersectional, it's like, why in the fuck does Daenerys have to have white hair? Like, what is that? Because she's so totally colonizing and she's she is the white savior. Yeah. That's what she is. Dar- Daenerys Targaryen is totally being a white savior. It's like if the gr- great grandson of like Cecil Rhodes or something, um, <laughs> you know, was like, oh, oh, my great-grandfather did shitty things, but now I'll take over this other place and colonize them the right way. I feel like that's Daenerys in a nutshell. Oh, yeah, totally. And then come and fight for me so that I can get back on the Iron Throne because I'm like 23 and I'm the fucking queen. It's like, huh? Yeah, and why does she have to tell us exactly like who she is with the titles? I'm done with your titles. Yeah. Yeah, it's really too bad that she didn't just come like a Dothraki queen and like live there for the rest of her life. I she needed to own that. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, her and like I want to see an epic battle between her and Cersei too, and then Arian. I I mean, Arya comes in as Tywin and slits Cer- Cersei's throat at the end, and Jamie's there crying until his balls get cut off, and then he gets stabbed. I feel like this is this this can work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's get into it. So, our first topic, number one. Oh, the liberals. Mm. How are you feeling about the liberals, Nora? I'm loving it. Okay. I'm loving it. Like, so, I don't know if you catch our podcast, but like our last episode started off with Sandy and I talking about how much we fucking love this. I know. I heard. Yeah. <laughs> 
I subscribe to your podcast. Oh, great. <laughs> I am a subscriber. I just want to say, hint, hint, subscribe to their podcast. Okay, next. <laughs> um, so the Liberals this past week, uh, Finance Minister Bill Morneau tabled his bud- budget implementation bill that would officially trigger the funds for the proposals outlined in Budget 2019. This bill, much like previous budget implementation bills, was an ominous bill, and buried inside of it was a policy change to existing asylum laws that would prevent asylum seekers from making refugee claims in Canada if they have made similar claims in other countries, such as the United States. This is a marked change from the Liberals in 2015, where Trudeau pledged to take in 25,000 refugees that year. The change, which blindsided refugee advocates and lawyers, introduces a new ground of ineligibility for refugee protection. If an asylum seeker has previously opened a claim for refugee protection in another country, his or her claim would be ineligible for consideration, as would claims by people who are already who already have made unsuccessful claims here deemed been deemed inadmissible because of their criminal records or been granted refugee protection elsewhere. The provision is based on the belief that Canada's refugee system is similar enough to that of the United States that that anyone rejected there is likely to be rejected here as well. But in addition to this change, the Liberals seem to be looking more and more like Stephen Harper and the Conservatives. So I tweeted about this um, yesterday, mm-hmm. and seems like I struck a nerve. So people were upset that I compared um, the liberals to the conservatives, but you know, if I'm not going to judge them by policy, then I'm just a partisan hack in my in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, this is really, really conservative policy. What do you think? Yeah. So I actually wrote about this for the Washington Post right after the budget was launched. And I was surprised that not more progressives were onto it. Now, there was a lot in the budget. So, you know, I'm not blaming anyone. You know, there's a lot to to digest. And what happened this past week was, of course, uh, stuck into the omnibus bill. Right. And so it was easy to not necessarily see the signs with uh, the the straight up numbers that they were assigning to things and then be surprised by the by the omnibus uh, additions, the motions that were going to be added to the budget. I I mean, all the signals have been there, right? Like if you've been paying attention to what the liberals have been saying about the, the safe third country agreement, they never wanted people to be able to come from the United States. And it is so fucked because if you think about what's going on in Europe and the entire Mediterranean and how people are crossing the Mediterranean to come to Europe because there is a global a refugee asylum people moving crisis, right? People are are seeking life somewhere else as a result of different things. Um, in some cases, people fleeing, you know, war or fleeing famine or both. And Canada is trying to shut off the most reasonable way that people would enter Canada, right? Like <laughs> our huge border. <laughs> like it's like we are we are trying to block people from coming to Canada by the easiest way possible. And so when I when I was writing this article, um, the amount of money that they were dedicating to border security seemed 
unbelievable. It's something it's like more than a billion dollars plus five hundred million dollars given to the RCMP, which, of course, is the principal security agency that deals with uh, asylum claims and people crossing the border irregularly. Oh, you mean the same RCMP that um, that sent Mehar Arar back to Syria? Oh, that RCMP? Yeah, or the one that you may have heard, like that pretty much like how many women RCMP members all have claims of sexual assault or inappropriate oh, yeah, sexual that behavior? RCMP. That RCMP. Okay, carry on. Yeah, our state, like the state security of agency that is known for being not great. <laughs> That's the nicest thing I could say about them. Yeah. And so money is being given to these, to them and to border security. And then it's all being managed under Bill Blair, who anyone <laughs> who like remembers the G20 in Toronto knows Bill Blair as being the friendly face of the mass arrest and mass detention of protesters the weekend of the G20 in 2010 in Toronto. And so, I mean, I haven't been surprised by this. I have been deeply fucking angry about this. And and I think that liberal voters really have to answer for this. Or it's them that then need to then like call their call their members of parliament and being like, what the fuck is this? Because as you said, this is this places the 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 liberals in the exact same camp as the conservatives. And that is not that is fact. That's not even a controversial statement that that is the same as the conservatives refusing to allow Mexican asylum seekers into Canada because it's like, oh, Mexico is a safe country. There's no problem. Let's go. What the fuck is their problem? Right. People fleeing Mexico could not come to Canada under the Harper government or they made it very difficult changing visa requirements. Mm-hmm. And it's the same kind of policy as what we saw with with Stephen Harper literally sending agents to the Czech Republic to discourage people from getting on planes to come to Canada, which is, of course, the other way people come to Canada, right? It's either by land, by air, or by sea. And uh, and having billboards in the Czech Republic saying, do not come to Canada, your asylum claim will not be processed. It's like, what well, in the fuck is this bullshit? Well, this is the same thing with um, Minister Hussein, who, who went down to, like, Florida to discourage people from Haiti from um from trying to immigrate to Canada like he, like this is something the liberals have been actively doing mm-hmm. underneath the radar for at least a couple of years and nobody talked about it nobody talked about it nobody scrutinized them over it and now we're just supposed to believe that they're doing this that that somehow Andrew Shear is the bigger threat when we have tr- like basically Trudeau replicating conservative policy behind our back how how i'm struggling to see the difference well there the the there is no difference in the material sense the difference of course in the in the rhetorical sense is that they put a friendly face on it and this is why it's so dangerous because then it it it, it takes the far right discussion points of close the borders no immigration uh refugees are fake and all this kind of bullshit that you're hearing from like the far right it gets translated into the conservatives as being like soft, right? And now we've got the liberals literally putting into policy. And so, you know, if the liberals are trying to differentiate themselves as being better than the conservatives, not as racist as the conservatives, better on immigration than the conservatives, this is proof in the clearest sense of the word that they're not, that they are literally imposing 
policies that are just as bad as the conservatives would do. Well, as Aaron would call it, it's lipstick on a pig. Oh, it's it's lipstick on a pig, but but it's it's even worse than that because because then it gives a tremendous space to the conservatives to be way fucking worse, right? Like, yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Is that is that the liberals shifting to this policy means that they're shifting the center, right? And when you shift the center, everything relative to the center gets shifted too. So the extremes look one extreme. So now the left, the progressives look more extreme, right? Mm-hmm. And you're right. The right looks more palatable. I mean, I want to emphasize the damage the liberals are doing by adopting conservative-like policies. And not only that, they're adopting their language. Mm-hmm. Like a regular border crossings? What the fuck is that? Or asylum shopping, right? Or asylum shopping. You're right. That's another thing. Like I was literally appalled, absolutely appalled. And I know I shouldn't be appalled because like I knew they were doing sort of these types of things behind everybody's back, but they thought they could slip it into a budget implementation bill, an omnibus bill, where in 2015, Trudeau is the one who said, you know, we're not going to do those omnibus bills anymore. So he's going back on yet another electoral promise. He is alienating yet another group. And it just goes to show that I wonder, like, to me, this is a subtle attack on the welfare state, too. Mm. I think immigration is part of that welfare state. And so, um, I mean, one can argue that it's not, and I'm fine. Like, I, I can see points on the other side saying that immigration really isn't part of the welfare state, but I feel like it is. Right. I mean, but even if you even if you were to say that immigration was bad... Um, we have a process to determine who immigrates to Canada. So why do you need to then also put a new layer on who is allowed to seek asylum? Like, don't we have a system that's able to determine everybody's claim as they make it? And if not, then we have a structural problem. So in other words, the problem is not with the immigrants or the asylum seekers. The problem is with the structural and operational you know, capabilities of our system. So let's just say that. Yeah. That's my problem. Well, there are many problems with this, but that's another problem Yeah, that I personally have. I mean, to me, this is appalling. To me, this is built, this is like a C-51, mm-hmm. okay? Which is something else that the liberals have not moved on at all, even though they promised everybody that they would. Yeah, like, and, and they needed to. Ahead. Their membership, I think that like people who vote liberal, I think that this kind of stuff actually does, by and large, make people angry that that do vote liberal. And so, the liberals have two modes of operation. They have the carrot and they have the stick. And the carrot are like talking about poverty and you know how they've gotten all these people out of poverty, even though all they did was change the definition of what's poverty to do it. Um, <laughs> Like, oh, yeah, that was don't don't look at that part of the story. Right. So that's, you know, that's the carrot. And then and then the stick is like these these really brutal anti-person, anti um, anti anti-humanity measures that are not different than what the fuck is going on in the United States. I mean, what is the difference between Trump's border wall and Trudeau's 
policies. The difference is that Trudeau is more effective because a border wall is fucking stupid. <laughs> like, yeah, but basically he's he's erecting his own sort of um, migration policy that we see in the states. So basically, what are you saying when you say that the U.S. policy is like Canadian policy? Are you saying that we jail like we are supportive of? family separation and migration circumstances is that what we're saying because if we're saying that then let's just fucking say it well we do policy but we do right we already jail people who are, are in immigration detention they are put into jail exactly exactly and that's the thing like i personally look at this to me i i felt like it was a slap in the face i feel used not even i feel like this is actually what the liberals did the liberals campaigned on progressive policies but are really just governing from the right Mm -hmm. and everybody said that that like i remember you saying that's what the liberals do you and sandy were saying this yeah they have just given voice to the Faith Goldies, to the Andrew Shears with with their UN migration pack bullshit, okay, which is just veiled anti-Semitism. Did you see the Ecos poll? Yes, I did. So Frank Graves of Ecos, basically, he tweeted out, um, for the first time, opposition to visual, visible minority immigration is higher than that to immigration in general. Now, I'm going to break and say that this is not the first time. This is probably the first time they've measured it. Okay. 42% think too many immigrants aren't white, but CPC supporters register an all-time high of 71%. The vast majority of CPC reporters think there are too many non-white immigrants. Well, you know, like news at 11, like we didn't already know that. Mm -hmm. But you know what? The question was this. The question posed was, forgetting about the overall number of immigrants coming to Canada, of those who come, would you say there are too few, too many, or the right amount who are members of visible minorities? Now, overall, 42% of Canadians think that there are too many visible minority immigrants. 19% of liberals think that, 71% of conservatives, 28% of NDP, and 34% of green. And I was like, the Green Party, my goodness. I didn't (laughs) know there were so many white supremacists. But then I look at the Green Party and I'm like, well, it's male and white. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. But... um. 42% of Canadians are, like, hardcore racist. Like, I'm not surprised. I think it's a little bit more, but whatever. 39% are, say that the overall number of visible minorities, visible minority immigrants is just about right. So, basically, if they're more, then they would just go over into the too many categories. So, to me, they're racist in waiting. You know, like this is it's not really the funny thing is, is that it's not really upsetting to me. It just underscores what I always thought about this country. Well, maybe not always, but definitely in the last like 10 years have thought about this country. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that there's also a really important like conceptual change with how 
how this poll is talking about immigration in terms of like seeing these big shifts in numbers, because what it what it does is it automatically separates white immigrants from non-white immigrants, which I'm not actually sure most Canadians really think about. Because when you separate non-white and white immigrants, what you're saying de facto is that non-white people in Canada are all immigrants. Thank you. Right? You, you, I tweeted that at oh. Frank Graves. Right. Yeah. But go on. Well, and and so then you're then you're then you're changing the conception of what a Canadian is, right? Because like obviously Canada has a white default, and I write about this all the time, and and you folks talk about this all the time on the on the podcast. But that white default is is really insidious in different ways, and it, it often expresses itself as well. If you're not white in this country, you're asked where you're from, and people don't believe you when you say, "Well, I'm from fucking Kingston," and they're like, "No, you're not. Where are you really from?" and and it erases the fact that this country has always not had non-white people in it. In fact, it is founded on a non-white person country, right? Or set of nations. But, right. but from the era of Matthew Acosta with Jacques Cartier coming, right. Samuel de Champlain coming to Quebec in 1608. there has Matthew Acosta was black, everybody. Right. Okay. And he was there as a world-class interpreter. The guy spoke right. enough languages to be like, okay, this guy is the one that's going to help the mission talk to people, <laughs> right? Like, Because right. I think a lot of people also see Matt, someone like Matthew Acosta and say, well, he must have just been a slave. And it's like, he was part of the mission as any other fucking person was part of that mission. And that was from the first days of the colony of New France. Right. And when we stop talking about the fact that non-white people have been here as long as white people, then it is easy for white Canada to see immigrants as being the only non-white group of people. I mean, like living in Quebec, I- immigration from France is like very obvious because you hear French accents everywhere and you can you know that there's a lot of people that immigrate from France here. But living outside of Quebec, like it never occurred to me who's white and who's not white of the immigrant group. Like there's like, there's an immigrant experience that's going to be different based on what kind of immigrant you are and where you're from, but you just came to a new country. So that creates a, a an experience that's very different than if you grew up in Canada or whatever, right? Because you come from somewhere else. Right. But when we start then saying, well, are you okay with white immigrants and non-white immigrants? That is like, <laughs> that is like getting to a new level of the, of that white Canada you're basically asking people straight up, do you do you want Canada to be more white or less white? Yeah, and um they're using it like what um Frank Graves said is that they're using it as a proxy for race racism, basically. Right. right. And I get that. However, here's the thing you basically just erase our indigenous population. Like just took them off the board. Mm-hmm. And they're such an important part of this discussion. I saw that a lot of pollsters conflate immigrants with visible minorities. Mm -hmm. And they do so, so often that I don't even think they realize it. And this conflation is destructive, in my opinion. Totally. Because what, like you said, what it does is that it, it provides a cover for us to believe that Canada is white. There are only white, you know, they're all, it's only a settler nation. And the rest of us are somehow imposing on Canada. 
right? So we came here, we don't really belong here, but we're using, we're, we're imposing on a white country. And the attitude is that, well, you know, we as white people, and this is with progressives too, we as white people lent the welcome mat and invited you into our country. And this idea of identity and ownership and the land really comes into play in in who is an immigrant and who is Canadian mm-hmm. and what does that look like? Totally, totally. And it goes back to that whole um, that whole discussion with the conservatives with old stock Canadian. Right. Right. I mean, right. it just it just makes it even more obvious. Like the, the thing that makes me so fucking angry about about the moment that we exist in today is it's like we are fighting for the base level representation of people who are not white in all of our institutions as if this is new. Right. As mm. if it's like still a big deal, like it will still be a big deal if Toronto ever elects someone who's not white. Right. And fucking God forbid a woman who's not white. Right. Right. I I'm I I uh I follow a page on Facebook called Retro Ontario. I don't know if you follow it, but it shows like really awesome old clips from TV from Ontario TV's past, okay? And the I'm other night I'm looking it up right now. It, it is wicked. And the other night they were they were playing like Boogie Nights or something like this. It's like the precursor to Electric Circus from the 70s. Oh, cool. Oh my yeah. gosh. And it's so diverse. It's like so fucking diverse and it is <laughs> Like from 1975, right? And, yeah. And it's not like they're like trying to fill a quota or try, like maybe they're trying to like. Ref- oh, I'm looking at it now. I'm looking at it. Yeah. 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 And maybe they're trying to reflect a modern lo- uh, image of the city of Toronto in the mid 70s. But for fuck's sakes, it is more diverse than what you'll see on TV now. Right. So what happened? I was just going to say that. What what exactly was the moment where Canada started to go, oh, no, no, my God, we're getting to be too not white. Like, we really need to put a lid on this shit and, and become white again. Like, that's why I say diversity is not that fucking hard. No. Like, it's just not. It's the bare minimum. Are you telling me that you are so white and, and cornered off and you're so segregated that you have no lines into people of color, then that's your fault. Yeah. Yeah. And you need to take responsibility. Don't act like it's the hardest thing in the world. It really isn't that hard. Well, but we, what we don't talk about is how segregated our cities really still are, right? Like there, there are cities that are very diverse and they're not that segregated and, and you can live and mix with people who are not like you. But there are a lot of cities that are very segregated still. And if you are white and you don't feel like there's something wrong with your existence, if you're living in, I don't know, London or Sudbury Ottawa. or Ottawa, right? And all of your friends Ottawa's are white. Ottawa's very segregated. Totally. And and I, I heard this when I was in Saskatoon, that, that people were really, uh, they just didn't know how to break out of the segregation that they lived in their whole life in Saskatoon. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, you have to figure that out. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Like, I live in a city so I'm a I'm a linguistic minority and it's a major linguistic minority. I'm in like 8% of the whole population of the city. Okay, fine. But I'm white, so I'm not a minority until I open my mouth. And um it's a city that's like really white, right? We're like the fifth whitest city in Canada or something like this, and the other four are all in Quebec as well. Oh girl, I've been to Quebec City, I'm aware. <laughs> but like <laughs> 
if, <laughs> even here, even here, if you don't have diverse friends or you don't have diverse experiences in a city like this, it probably means that you are from here and you're just you just know the same people you've known for fucking 50 years or 30 years or 20 years or something like this. And it's like that is not good enough. I mean, how do you live in such a closed, sheltered existence? And part of it is I think the message that people get from the media that 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 the 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 idea that you can live in a white regina, for example, mm-hmm. is completely bonkers when you look at who lives in Regina, right? Or who lives in Calgary or who lives in Edmonton, right? These are diverse cities. Yeah. yeah. But there's Listen. still there's still yeah. this idea that they are white, that they are that they are white majority, and therefore that is the most normal and that is the default. And then that makes white people get really nervous when they're like, Well, I understand that, you know, my city's a white city, but I look around and there's a lot of people who aren't white. And it's like, yeah, it hasn't been white for a long time. Like I don't know what the fuck who you're consuming news from or who you're existing around all the time, but like break out of that. Yeah, exactly. Get some new fucking friends, man. Yeah. <laughs> like really. Like, it's literally not that hard. No. I, 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 again, I, I keep saying this. Like, I mean, you have to, and, you know, knowing white people, they'll treat it like it's a, it's a fucking calculus equation. Yeah. Well, if I get this many white friend, non-white friends, then I'm okay. If I get, they'll, they'll treat it like a transaction. Yep. And, you know, I'm starting to realize this is why white people fail diversity because you're dealing with communities of color and communities of color have had to be communities for a reason for survival so there's this whole transactional idea of relationships i know i'm getting very meta right now but like the whole like the whole idea of community to people who have been in power is foreign totally So they treat diversity as though it's a transaction or a math equation instead of building a community. And like I got up at like a public like event and was just like, yeah, you guys are not the experts on this. So that's something that you have to realize. And the reason is, is that you're not going to transpose your way of building a network onto communities people who have been existing in communities for since forever right because we've had to survive and that's how we survive so this whole idea of diversity and inclusion and so on has to take more of a community feel where relationship building is the key that's yeah. my point yeah well and, and i think that this is this is really something that white people don't understand that I think that we are extremely damaged by the current status quo. Yeah. That it works. Explain, explain to people what you mean, because I think people are like, well, I have a, like my house, my kids and I'm fine and da, 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 da. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. Right. By the material uh, measurements that are the popular ways that we determine whether or not we're, we're successful, you're doing okay, right? You know, you're getting by every month. You might even have some savings. You have a house, you have a family, you have an okay job or whatever. And so it's like, well, I'm okay. So I don't need 
more than this. I don't need necessarily the supports around me that you would need if you were struggling to have that community around you. And so that so those material things that a lot of white people can fill their existence with and other people, too. But I think that this is a primarily white phenomenon (laughs) that they mask the deep sickness that exists within our broader communities, that there is no way that we can connect with one another unless it's like we have friendships that go back many years or maybe we're in a mommy group or maybe we're in a in a in a Facebook group on a specific issue and even those issues remain or tend to be segregated you know it's like I'll I'll hear like like progressives talking about how it's so hard to find non-white people to be involved in certain things and it's like where are you looking (laughs) like who are you? And asking? nobody's coming out for your camping trip with s'mores, okay? <laughs> like, or maybe seriously. they would if it didn't sound so shitty and boring, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like we're going out to the woods for what? <laughs> yeah, no. yeah. Or, or, or maybe, maybe actually, for a lot of white people, we've completely forgotten that whole aspect of the world, which is like fun and socializing and making friends like I don't know what do you think about this whole idea that you can't make friends in your 30s like I don't know how old you are so maybe I'm being presumptuous but you can be presumptuous it's fine okay like I've totally made friends in my 30s so I don't even know what people are talking about right maybe just maybe like I feel like what the fuck are you talking about (laughs) Basically, are you saying, no, you don't make friends in your 30s being in your house watching TV? Right, exactly, right? There's like no Tinder for friends. Do something, motherfucker. (laughs) Like, I don't understand how, are you an asshole? Maybe it's just you. Like, that's how can you not make friends? How can you not make friends in your 30s? I don't understand that. See, that to me is like peak white identity is it's like, oh my God. My glory days are gone. My glory days being like in my sorority oh, when I was fucking 20, right? Good point. And now that I have like this shitty marriage and my shitty kids and my shitty job, I just have nowhere to make friends. And I, I've always read this and and been very confused by these analyses because it's like, I mean, if I didn't make friends in my 30s, I would literally have no friends because I moved in my 30s to a new city where I literally knew no one, right? So it's yeah. like- no, no, you you make your community. You find your friends, you find your family, you find the folks that you do X with and then the folks who you do Y with. And sometimes they cross and sometimes they don't. Right? Like my soccer friends are not necessarily the same friends I have like hanging out and talking about our kids, right? Same. But fuck, like this, this is, I think, alienation. This is peak alienation. And I think everyone experiences alienation to a certain extent because that's the society that we live in. But I think it, sure. it's just, it, it, it affects white people in a very insidious way because we are, we are told two things. We are told that we have the world is our oyster and we can do anything and this is ours to win or to lose. And then when you lose, you get like really depressed. And then we're also told that you just can't, you just can't find new people. You just can't find that group that's going to be there for you and lift you up and help you through different things. And so we rely on friendships that we've made in the past. We rely on on maybe unhealthy habits or whatever. And we don't actually have the ability to figure it out because we are normal. We're the dominant vision of society. And it's like, sorry, going to Homestead every, every fucking month to buy a bunch of bullshit that says love to put over your house is not culture. Hmm. <laughs> 
I mean, that's really, really interesting. Actually, I'm, I'm, that's a really, really interesting take because I am starting to realize, well, not starting, but I realize that my idea of community and how that works is, is a deeper version of like, think of the difference between networking and community. Right, right. White people will tell you to network. Others will tell you to build community. Mm. There's a difference. Networking is very transactional. Community is very relationship-driven and nurturing the relationship over time and dipping into that relationship and giving. And this is why I don't feel comfortable when people are like, it is white people who will say, when I say, hey, you know, do you need help? Do you need anything? I'll get this for you. Da, 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 da. It's white people who want to treat it as a transaction and tell you, oh, I'll pay you back in like two seconds. And I'm like, it's fine. They're like, no, 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 no. I'll pay you back. I'll do this. I'll do that. And I'm just like, it's okay. Further on down the line, I may ask something from you mm-hmm. at some point. I know I'm making this kind of godfathery, but the point is, is that, is that there's a natural give and take that doesn't keep score. And what I find in white communities is that they have always keeping score as to what is owed and who owes what. Mm-hmm. And that is the transactional nature of their communities. Whereas where I'm from, where the way I grew up is that you help people out and in turn at some time when they when you need them, maybe you'll call on them. If not, so be it. But that's what it is. And it'll work out in the wash. Totally. It is not this consistent um idea of policing what the balance is. That is the difference between, I think, white communities. And when I say white communities, I'm mostly talking about Anglo-Saxon communities mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and everybody else. Yeah. So I feel like, um, like Southern European communities are different. They're more like the community aspect, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas Anglo-Saxons are like, well, we're on top and it's all about the individual. Yeah. And you only dip into community when you need something. And that is insidious. Or to get ahead. Or to get ahead. And that's insidious. And that's what leaves people empty at the end of the day. It's funny because when you, as you were talking, um, I had, the, I had keeping score in my mind until you said it. And I was like, fuck, yes, <laughs> that's exactly it. And it's so weird because it's like, I started my first book. Uh, which is on the labor movement, by telling the story that my grandmother told me. I'm sorry, your first book what? That I I started my first book with a with an anecdote. Is this book out? Yeah, yeah. It was um I, I it's uh six years old now. Yeah. I, I wrote a book on the labor movement in Canada and getting young workers involved. Do you wanna and... do a plug a little bit? Sure. Um you can check it out at uh policyalternatives.ca. It was published by the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, which is cool. Uh, slash demonized dash organized. The book is called From Demonized to Organized. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah. Um and I and I started with, with this with this story about 
something my grandmother told me. So my grandmother, uh, it was um, uh, a farmer. My grandfather was a farmer. They live. They lived outside of London, Ontario, in southwestern Ontario. They the family immigrated from England to that plot of land to farm it, and it's it's still farmed to this day. My uncle and my cousins still farm that land, and she would tell me the tremendous reliance that everyone had on each other in the community to farm because farming in the 1930s and the 40s and 50s were was really rough and mm-hmm. um, they couldn't afford certain pieces of equipment. And so she was telling me the story that it was so funny that, you know, uh, they would um, have a combine that the whole community would own and the combine would be, you know, go field to field and the men would all come to combine someone's field and then the wives were expected to make all the food for them. And the way that she told the story was it was funny because they didn't have fridges and that if it was bad weather, then she would lose a whole like feast basically and then they would be stuck eating this feast and i was like what happened to anglo-saxon ontarians for example wasp ontarians from that spirit of community that i see in my italian family actually all the time that you'd go out and help people and you're not keeping score at all what happened with anglo-saxons in ontario to turn away from that sense of helping one another and that sense of community. And like for sure in farming communities, it still exists. Like I think that when there's a survival aspect to it, you rely on community to survive. And certainly as I'm building my own life now, I rely on my community to survive. Like I rely on knowing who I can call in an emergency or whatever. But this keeping score mentality really has, I think, taken hold of that that majority white perspective. And it inhibits people from having real relationships with people who are not like them. And, and it's depressing. is the exact point. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So now I'm going to move on because like, we've been talking about this for like 50 minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think it's an important... It's just something that I've realized or I've been sort of, it's been in the front of my mind for weeks. So Mm -hmm. that's why I kind of bring it up in terms of um, the, the, in terms of immigration and asylum and the whole alienation of what we're doing. And what we're doing is we're creating um, an underclass. Okay. Next up is basically the attacks against Ilhan Omar, representative from Minnesota, who last week faced a barrage of attacks from Republicans regarding remarks she made at an event hosted by the Council on American Islamic Relations. In her remark, Omar focused on how Muslim Americans had their constitutional rights and freedoms infringed upon following the 9-11 attacks. Mm-hmm. Omar said that, quote, some people did something and that all of us were starting to lose access to our civil liberties, unquote. Republicans, including Donald Trump, used every opportunity to highlight that Omar was diminishing the events of 9-11, with Trump repeatedly tweeting out videos of 9-11 footage and misrepresenting Omar's remarks. Several Democratic pres- presidential candidates Bernie, Warren, Harris, Jay Inslee, and Cory Booker 
condemned the actions taken by the White House and Republicans against Omar on Twitter, with Beto O'Rourke saying at a campaign stop, this is an incitement to violence against Congresswoman Omar, against our fellow Americans who happen to be Muslim, unquote. With Elizabeth Warren adding over the weekend that Trump, quote, is trying to incite violence to divide us, those who don't speak out in the Republican leadership are complicit in what he is doing. It is wrong, unquote. So meanwhile, Christian Gillibrand, Democratic senator and presidential candidate, said, quote, as a senator who represents 9-11 victims, I can't accept any minimizing of that pain. But Trump's dangerous rhetoric against Ilhan Omar is disgusting. It is a false choice to suggest we can't fight terrorism and reject Islamophobic hate at once. A president should do both, unquote. So um, I also want to bring up that in, I believe, West Virginia, there had been a poster. This was like maybe three or four weeks ago, maybe four weeks ago. There was a poster um, demonizing uh, Representative Omar uh, and basically insinuating that she was a terrorist through this poster that that basically equated her with 9-11. So um, Islamophobia, I just want to also point out that Islamophobia and anti-Blackness are um, have an overlap and I smell massage noir too, which Trump is infamous for. Um, and Trump's anti-blackness is quite documented. So what I found disgusting about this whole thing is really the democratic response. And um, especially the speaker's response to this, which was just, you know, anyone, everyone should be, it was very all lives matter to me. Mm. And it didn't even mention her by name. And I thought it fell very far short of what should have been the response. So there's my piece. What's your piece? Yeah, I mean, Ilan Omer is a fucking hero. (laughs) Like, everything that she says i'm like wow yes 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 oh my god and the negligence of the democratic party to not wrap around her a big wool sweater of love and support is a fucking mistake and it's a mistake that's wrapped in as you say misogynoir and islamophobia and anti-blackness but it's a mistake strategically too because for fuck's sakes like who the fuck do they think is going to be voting for the democrats <laughs> like, yeah exactly i mean we can get like superly crass about this but i they it is very clear that there are forces in the united states that want to silence ilhan and they want to silence aoc and they want to silence rashida talib yeah and others like there's other really great women racialized women around the democratic caucus and it, and and they are sending messages out to the loudest ones who are Ilhan and Alexandria and Rashida to a lesser extent and to not see these as specific and targeted 
attempts to silence a political orientation rather than to to try and, you know, make this about 9-11 and how we have to remember, you know, people to the utmost of our abilities and model like crazy and all this stuff. It's like what is happening here is ter- is trying to is trying to maintain the hegemony of um, American imperialism in the discourse as it has been the status quo for 15 years or 16 years. And whenever I hear Ilan Omer talk, it's like nothing that she's saying is that radical, right? It's like the, 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 the hatred and the attack on Americans and on Muslim Americans in the aftermath of 9-11 is obvious. I mean, 9-11 changed everything for the left. 9-11 was the moment that we went in North America from a fighting and organized anti-globalization movement to like a sputtering and barely alive anti-war movement. And eventually that anti-war movement, of course, was crushed. And so when you hear someone say that nine that the effect of 9/11 on muslim americans or people perceived to be muslim for you know example because of course there was a lot of other people who were caught up in the hatred that's truth that is that is undeniable truth and that has nothing to do with the tragedy and the experience of people who lost family or friends on 9-11. I mean, I have a friend who survived 9-11 thinking that her father was killed that whole day. And listening to her stories was like the most unbelievable kind of experience that I've ever had because her entire classmate had people die. Classmates had people die. She had f- f- uh, friends who had parents both die. And then mm-hmm. and then knowing people who committed suicide after. I mean, it, like to, for a city to lose 2,000 people, you know, proportionally, we're seeing Christchurch, Christchurch, uh, New Zealand, the proportion of no, of the number of people that live there was like 2000 people being killed in the United States. Right. So that's a that's a proportionally similar experience. Right. But to then say that anybody that says that the impact on Muslims and people perceived to be Muslim in the United States after 9-11 and anyone picked up by the Patriot Act to say that when you're talking about that is an attack on the memory of people who died in 9-11 is obviously fucking bullshit is so obviously bullshit. And for Nancy Pelosi to then be like, well, that's not what we should be saying. That's not appropriate. Lots of people die. There's American tragedy. She's fueling the fire of people's hatred to try and silence Ilhan Omar from speaking. It is so obvious. You know that. I know that. A lot of people know that. But it is a dangerous game because Omar will pay with this with her life if they are not careful. Yeah. And, and she shouldn't have to. Obviously, she shouldn't have to. Nothing is she saying is incorrect or inflammatory. It's all very true. So I want to um, talk about how diversity is administered. Um, this is everybody was like jumping up and down and saying how diverse the Democrats are. I was one of them, sure. But eventually... Diversity comes down to, again, that transactional nature. And what I find is that it's okay to have diverse women in Congress in your cabinet as -hmm. long as they don't speak. And it's, it's this window dressing approach to representation. It does not work. 
And that's why representation cannot be led by white people, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. is because it's okay to have, you know, Representative Omar, um, like parroting democratic tropes. But as soon as she talks about from, uh, talks about issues from her experience, then it becomes a problem. I will just say it is not often that I hear about 9-11 from the experience of Muslim Americans. Not at all. We don't hear that at all. Unless they're heroes who went into a burning building to, to save white people. And that is my problem, is that you want, pe- you want these people to show a certain face, but you actually don't want to hear from them unless they are upholding a certain standard of whiteness. And that is not diversity. It is not inclusion. It is not representation. All it is is tokenism. So basically it, what we're seeing, and I, I, I think we need to, like for me, I'm drawing parallels between the Jody Wilson-Raybould, SNC-Lavalin, um, Selena, Cesar, Savannah's, um, Jane, even Jane Philpot, who's an ally, I would say Jane Philpot showed us what it looks like to be an ally. Um, and seeing this sort of parallel happening in the States is very, very instructive as to where we are when it comes to inclusion. We are nowhere. Yeah. Where we are is yes, we like it for marketing purposes, but we don't actually want these people to provide input because it actually may change shit. Yeah. And that's the thing with, and it was the same thing with Hillary. Hillary was pandering. Hit, like when when you have a hashtag called his pandering, I think you're pandering. Mm. And it's it's I am I as a black feminist am disgusted by a bunch of white people who want to tell me what the fuck diversity looks like. You don't know. Because as we were just saying, everything is transactional to you. Well, not you personally, Nora, you know what I mean. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm here for that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like everything is transactional. So you are actually not into changing things. You just want to put a face to the status quo. And when I saw Nancy Pelosi's tweet, that's what I saw. Mm-hmm. And therefore, um, the reprieve she got from me is over. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like th- th- this is where I, I struggle r- with representation because I think representation or neoliberalism which is really white people's representation is not really representation, right? It's like, yeah, it's tokenization. It's giving one person position, not much power. And that, and that's there. You got your representation. Shut up. Right. Yeah. And it forgets the fact that people are still connected to their communities, that people might do things in different ways, that they come from different uh, traditions of politics, that they come from different traditions of oppression and different experiences. And that what drove them into politics is like near certainly not what drove their their colleagues into politics. Mm-hmm. And this is where I get very frustrated with the Liberal Party of Canada because they are they are masters at sanitizing and neutralizing grieve grievances yeah. of racialized candidates or politicians or whatever if they have them. I'm sure that there are many racialized people in the Liberal caucus who are happy to applaud when Trudeau says applaud. 
Miriam Monsef cough cough. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so I'm not the only one who who noticed that, right? Oh, I know. It is I mean, okay. but these people these people come from like being hacks their whole existence, right? So like there's there's also a part of the whole machine that raises hacks and hacks look like all different kinds of people and then become adult hacks and then they're hacks, right? It's like No, no, no. I mean, it's power, right? Like, I, I'm sure if you go to a young liberal event, the, the there are probably ten times the number of young white guys looking at Trudeau more lovingly than she does, right? Fair. Like, I went to a conservative convention where I saw like there was a, a hospitality suite being hosted by, I think it was by Lisa McLeod. And it was either, I know it's either by Lisa McLeod or Lisa Raitt. I just don't remember which Lisa because fuck, I'm like, I can't tell them apart. <laughs> and Peter McKay walks in and Ew! I know I like I was there to observe all this it was pretty wicked. And they the, the the horde of young men, there wasn't a single young woman looking at him with googly eyes. OK, not one. But the young men <laughs> looking at him with googly eyes, it was like. Ew. Guys, he's not a rock star. Like he's not attractive. Ew. He's not a rock star. He's not smart. Like chill, right? So <laughs> I'm sure Monsef represents that wing of the party who are enthralled by power and enthralled by someone like like Trudeau. But but this is the limit of representation, right? If you want to have a strong, powerful, racialized candidate or racialized woman candidate, and you're not willing to also then give the resources support help to realize their political aspirations which often includes their communities then you're uh, then you're failing then it's tokenism fully so i'm gonna i think you said something very important racialized people come with their fucking communities so let's let's just put that out there we come with our ancestors with our oral tradition and we come with our fucking communities because we can't, we can't get back into the community. <laughs> if we're not legit. Why do you think black people have this? Who's invited to the cookout thing. That's all about who is tried and true for the community. This is a thing like, and, and, like, if there's anything that I am going to sort of highlight in this entire episode, it is that, number one, identity is legitimate. And number two is that racialized people have communities. And we have a certain level of adherence to that community. Because the whole idea of ancestry the whole idea of coming from a line of people who have fought before you as, as whoever um, the next Muslim candidate is, whoever the next Muslim um, house of representatives or, or Congress person is, will have, will be thinking about representative Omar. And they, in some way, will be that will be front of mind whether even if they are they become a republican or they are a republican and are even fighting against that the point is is that the whole idea of people coming before you matters mm. it fucking matters the investment that we put in our community matter mm -hmm. and I think that that is something that is not 
realize when it comes to um, when it comes to diversity. Diversity should change your organization, the status quo. It should change it. If it doesn't, then all you're doing is window dressing. Yeah. Yeah. So like, that's why I'm like, I don't know what you all expected when you brought women of color who had substance into this conversation. Because if you want strong women, then you have to accept that strong women have our own opinions. And those opinions are not necessarily informed by your Anglo-Saxon culture. We are aware of it, but it's not necessarily completely informed by it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And also, like, I don't know what Ilan Omer's ascent into that role was like, but I certainly know that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, from the start, was fighting the establishment. Yeah. And... That right there, I mean, it, it it proved that the that the Democrats aren't necessarily even seeking out diversity among uh, a new group of of candidates that they just you know will maybe shake things up a little bit for them. Like AOC had to fight her way past one of the major gatekeepers of that party to win. And mm-hmm. and she got him because, of course, he had fully abandoned her riding or whatever the fuck they call it in the States. That's right. <laughs> For power. Right. And she organized around him and she leveraged the fact that he had not he doesn't even live there and had been doing not all that much in 20 years and was was the 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 chair, I guess, of the Democratic Party or whatever. I might be fucking wrong, but he, he held stature in that party that was significant and she busted it down. Yeah, he was a he was he, that man was powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, when you have a political party, you have to assume that people are going to be fighting their way into it if it has the ability to make significant changes in people's lives and certainly the Democrats do have that ability. And the the weird thing in Canada is that we don't really have those confrontations. Like there I can't really think of an acrimonious ascent of a candidate within the liberal party who hasn't been shut out from the time of the nomination. And if you, and you look at Jody Wilson Riggold and you look at Jane Philpott as examples and Selena Cesar Chavanna's being the examples of people who got into the party and then at some level changed their opinion or position on how the party operates. And it's like, boom, off with their heads. Right. Yeah. Fast. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. it's all bad and it's and it's and, and in the case of, of Omer, it's it's life and death. And and I fucking hope that the that the Democrats figure this shit out and stop trying to play footsies with the right. Because at the end of the day, if you can't reframe nine eleven to be about the survivors and the impact, the cultural impact, the political impact that that had on the United States, then you're fucked. Then all you've got is jingoism and all you have is like this war on terror that has been a failure, a racist, global, imperial failure for for the last almost 20 years. Well, I think I think it's very interesting that now you have this new generation of women, women of color who won't shut the fuck up. And it is, even though Jody Wilson-Raybould happened, like the whole thing is, you know, in one way, it's kind of depressing for all of us. But in another way, it's kind of like, you know what? 
we actually have that representation now. Mm -hmm. And what has been amazing to me is that, you know, at least like the communities have rallied around them. That's what's amazing. That is what needs to be gleaned from this too. Yeah. Is that, is that you ride for them. And, um, I think it's, it's just a very interesting way of, it's just very interesting to see Omar Alexander Cortez, um, Ocasio-Cortez, sorry, and Talib are three women. I knew they were, I knew as soon as they came in, I was like, watch the knives come out real soon. <laughs> yeah. Because women of color are not allowed to have an opinion. We're just there to support white women and white men. We're just there to be the maids, the cooks, and the slaves. And the mammies. And that's about it. The moment we have a voice, it's a problem. The moment, no, the moment we have a voice that's not parroting the status quo, it's a problem. At the end of the day, the liberals and the Democrats are basically the same that way. Next up is rant and receipts. Stay tuned. And now we're on to rant and receipts where we each bring something to rant about and let the others rant on in with us. Nora, (laughs) you're first. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so have you heard about a guy called Warren Kinsella? Yes. Okay. Chief dickwad of the Liberal Party, yes. (laughs) Well, don't call him of the Liberal Party too much longer because the guy just gave more than a grand to the Conservative Party of Ontario, the Progressive Conservative Party. No way! Oh, yes. (gasps) Isn't he a big-time Liberal? What happened? Well, I don't know. So this story, um, I'm going to tell the story in two parts. The first part is, unfortunately, or fortunately, like a lot of people know me because of a tweet that I sent a year ago. A year ago, pretty much to the day. Um, last year, I was in the middle of this shitstorm from saying something that at the time I thought was obvious. I don't know. You probably thought it was obvious, too, that in Canada, uh, people's lives are mourned differently and that I wished and I wish that we could mourn people's lives more equally, right? This was related to the Humboldt uh, Broncos bus uh, crash where 16 people were killed and since then, of course, the driver of the of the truck that caused the accident, he's been sentenced to eight years in jail. He might still face deportation after that. And it was his first solo run. And of course, none of the people who create such a horrible situation to even happen in the first place is going to be held responsible. But I got a good chunk of the heat, um, I would say, on me for uh, people's misdirected anger. So in the middle of that, my partner decided to call Warren Kinsella because Warren's a PR guy. He's a lawyer. He's someone who uh, does crisis communications. And we're, you know, kind of like in a shitty spot. We, we're not connected people. Like we don't know anybody. And the only reason why my partner thought to call Kinsella was because they used to spar uh, back in the day when Kinsella worked for the Ontario Liberal Party. My partner was uh, was in the student movement. And, uh, and, you know, there's a back and forth or whatever. And, uh, and the advice that uh, he gave um, my partner and then to me, you know, it was like, okay, thank you for that. Fast forward a year, 
later and the Ontario budget comes out and Kinsella, who's known, as you just said, as being a big liberal, he has been cozier with the Conservative Party of Ontario. I know that's not what they're called, but I'm just going to call them that anyway. He tweeted something about being with uh, Lisa McLeod and she was saying that he's like the real male feminist and uh, like some weird ass shit like that. And oh my God. <laughs> and so he responded to the to the Ontario Liberal budget, which was a catastrophically shitty budget, right? It's going to it is as far as destroying public higher education in Ontario as a government could get reasonably. Well, it's the destruction of the welfare state. The destruction of the welfare state, undoing all the protections for uh, or, pay, or payments for legal aid, uh, fucking gutting the Ministry of Indigenous Relations and dropping the word reconciliation just because they want to be dicks. Right. Mm-hmm. And so Kinsella's like, wow, this budget is um, this budget's not that bad. This actually is a, a reasonable, reasonable budget. And uh, I heard that from a few like I saw that on Twitter from a few people and I was like, what the ever living fuck are you talking about? This is the destruction of the welfare state. Anyway, I've I've issues. Carry on. Sorry. Well, it's true that it's 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 a it's a really bad budget. And like you either have to be completely unaware about certain sectors to be able to let it just pass by you and be like, OK, it wasn't that bad, which I don't think Kinsella is. Uh, or you have to be you know, trying to make it sound palatable for the conservatives. So I retweeted it and said, saying he's being paid for these guys, right? Right? The question mark. Yeah. And, uh, and he was like, say that again and you'll be sorry or something like this. And I mean, that's basically like fucking um, Pavlov's whistle to me. Yeah. Like, oh, I'll be saying that again, you motherfucker. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I said, I bet you're being paid by the conservative party for, for this. Right. Which is also a very useful way to hedge certain things that, you know, if he was like proof, I'm not. I'm like, whoa, OK, cool. I was wrong. Right. Right. Uh, and so he, that's okay. that's because you're OK with being wrong, though. Yeah. Fuck. Well, who the fuck isn't right? Christ. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's only, another discussion for another day. <laughs> yeah. I'm only OK with being wrong in certain circumstances. But when it comes to someone's intentions or who they're being paid for, fuck, I don't know. Like, it just seems pretty suspect that he's praising a shit budget. And so I thought that he was like, you're going to be sorry in the legal sense of the term. Uh, and instead, he he responded to me with like uh, a tweet that was profoundly, profoundly shitty. And so he announced to the world that my partner sought his advice and that he never should have given advice to someone who was, as he said, sick and sad as I am, uh, racist, uh, because the tweet that I'd sent was racist. Uh, and disgusting and um and i'm a liar (laughs) it was like whoa what else you want to call me you fucking weirdo (laughs) what did you lie about exactly because i'm struggling i fuck i i would love to know what he's talking about on that because i i actually have no idea i mean i can i know why some people are saying that what i said was racist because they have a fucked up idea of what racism is by talking about and they're white like uh, can i just say that white people can't tell me what the fuck is racist and what's not like they don't have the background, the intelligence, the history, the the connection to them. It's just an intellectual exercise on racism. People for whom it has no bearing cannot tell me what the fuck is racist and what is not. Hundred percent. So I just want to say that. 
No, hundred percent, hundred percent. But I can at least draw a line. Okay, like, okay, he thinks I'm racist. He thinks I'm sad or whatever. Like everyone else fucking does in that world. Uh, sick, like whatever. A liar. I couldn't parse that one. I couldn't parse that one. The response has been weirdly over the top. And so for a guy that does not want to be looking like he's working for the conservative party, the trolls, the conservative staffers that came after me, it was like the whole Humboldt thing was created in the first place by a nexus of conservative piece of shit like Outlaw Tory to Adrian Batra at the Toronto Sun to um, to other conservative operatives and made it all the way up to someone like Jason Kenney. Right. Right. This time, the, the 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 firestorm was obviously much less intense, but, you know, it was still like hundreds of messages over a couple of days from people who are just loving Kinsella. And, uh, and of course, he blocked me right after he said that, which was like, you are a big man, dude. Yeah, that's a big man thing to do because <laughs> I, I obviously have something to say to that. You fuck. Anyway, so um, so yeah, so he is a fucking asshole. Um, I uh, have already filed my complaint to the Law Society of Ontario against Kinsella. So there you go. That's big news. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that, like, I mean, I'm not embarrassed that my partner did that. I mean, I didn't. I, I was embarrassed at the time he did that. I was like, "Why are you asking Warren Kinsella? Don't do that." But um, but my partner was very uh upset by everything, right? Like it was. Yeah, because he didn't know what to do. He reached out to somebody he knew in the who who would know, like, you know, who's in PR, who's in politics, who has that intersection. I don't see the problem. I didn't see the problem when I saw the tweet. So I've been I actually followed this. Sorry, I know I'm taking your thunder, but just I love it. it. No, it's all good. (laughs) So so first of all, I was like, okay, so what's the big fucking deal then? So he sought your advice. So we're not supposed to seek your people's advice that we know what the fuck. Yeah, I don't understand the problem. And then the fact that he provided advice to your partner and then goes back and 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 publicizes it like it's a thing made me think that this is just this man is toxic okay and it this is not his first offense from what i understand this man has a history of running women off twitter women okay and that is my problem my well i have many problems with this fucker but my problem is you cannot call yourself um some sort of whatever he's calling himself these days feminist whatever 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 and then and then turn around and attack women because i don't see him attacking men the same way oh no i believe there was a um a twitter person patio limerick or something like that yeah that he ran off Twitter because he didn't like what she said. And this is the thing. What he does is he manipulates his platform and uses it because he has such a large platform, right? Mm -hmm. And uses it to send people um, to your account to harass you. Jonathan Kay does the same thing. He is he is these two are just undercover bigots in my opinion or or what's the opposite of undercover overcover (laughs) (laughs) you know what but i will say here they are bigots and to me like once you attack first of all when i see a man systemically attacking women systematically attacking women i've questions 
I have questions when you attack one set of people and not the others. Yeah. Okay. It's like, like I am, you know what ruined the internet? Fragile men. (laughs) And that man is fragile as fuck. This is misogyny on the internet and it is carried out by men who are used to having power and not being um, challenged on that power or their views or anything. And that is male fragility in a nutshell. Yeah. So what, so, you know, it's, it's, and when I saw him read like screen cap your tweet from a year ago. So first of all, let me tell you, I was so supportive of this tweet. I retweeted it. I spoke about it and so on and so forth. And the reason is, is that exactly what you tweeted is exactly what I was thinking. I literally just had not gotten to tweet it yet. Right. You literally, it was just a timing issue or else I would have tweeted something similar. Because what I saw from Humboldt was the fact that these are white kids with quote unquote, so much promise, Mm -hmm. but Around the same time, so let's contextualize this, around the same time, the Colton Bushi trial was happening. And we saw all of the racism that happened with that trial. The fact that Colton Bushi was sleeping when he was shot is everything to me. What's the difference between that and like the LA police shooting that, the, the, I I forget what his name is, Stephen something. Um, the black kid in his car while he was sleeping. What the fuck is the difference? Mm -hmm. There is no difference except that one is state sanctioned. That's basically it. And around this time. So basically I saw um, Canada's racism towards in, you know, towards indigenous people. And then I saw all this outpouring for these Holton, these Humboldt, sorry, these, this, these Humboldt victims. And I'm like, yes, that's sad, but literally it's a car accident. I'm sorry. It's not the same thing. And don't at whoever's listening to this. Don't at me on this. Okay. It's basically not the same thing. Violence from somebody else, that violence that is directed to you because you are seen as a threat is different from a car accident, even if it is negligence. Mm. Okay. It's not the same thing. Yes, it's sad that a whole bunch of white dudes um, and white kids um, died. It's sad. I agree. I mourn enough. Okay? But at the end of the day, it's not the fucking same thing as systemic violence and systematic violence, either from the state or an individual who is backed by the state. Mm. It is not the fucking same thing. And your tweet was on point. I will retweet that motherfucker if you tweet it again. <laughs> yeah. I, I get I, no shit. Because at the end of the day, this country is racist as fuck. And, at, and if I have to go back to that, you know, ecos poll that we talked about in this week of feminism, I will. You all are mm. fucking racist. <laughs> and it's about time that you all recognize that you're fucking racist and stop throwing around the round racist, around the word racist to people who, like, I love this, white people calling each other racist. Warren Kinsella calling people, Warren fucking Kinsella calling somebody racist? Get the fuck out of here. 
I'm just angry now. Now I'm angry. Yeah. <laughs> the rant, the not, rant's working. <laughs> if the rant is now I'm all like juiced up. <laughs> well, it, like the problem is, is, is that we live in a society where we need to have a perfect victim, right? And yeah. in the perfect victim narrative, what we have to divorce from the perfect ni- victim narrative is the reality that anyone who is touched by, by a tragedy or by violence, they, they obviously have that violence in their life and that tragedy for the rest of their lives. And it's horrible. And they've, and they've lost in this case, a son or a nephew or a brother. And it's horrible. It's like, that is really sad. But if you don't fit in the perfect victim narrative, you live in this country in a way that hurts every day, every fucking day. You want, you exist in Canada in a way that hurts, that causes you harm, that forces you to navigate harm, that forces you to navigate microaggressions, macroaggressions and systemic racism and and, and being called out on the street and, and losing jobs and being called bitchy and being called whatever every single fucking day. And then God forbid something happens to do to you and you're not the perfect victim. And then your family has to then deal with mourning someone who's not the perfect victim. Yeah. And so it's like there's a baseline of tragedy that's that's like unspeakable horror, losing a child, unspeakable horror. That is the baseline of tragedy. Right. It's like, holy fuck, that is horrible. Okay, what happened here? We have a systems failure. We have um, we have a government that's not willing to deal with like these uh, these level prairie crossings that are very dangerous This is an intersection where other people have died in the past and and there was no change to the intersection. Right. And to so, why just, are we asking about Transport Canada then? Well, for example, right, right, the trucking industry and all this kind of shit. The fact that the mm-hmm. that the driver had only this was his first solo drive. He was only trained for three months. That he's being punished for something that is arguably wasn't really his fault because he was put into that position. He was told he was ready to drive. Like, what the fuck is he supposed to say? No, no, no. You haven't trained me enough. I don't really. No, no. He went through the system. He's like, okay, I guess I'm ready to go. Yeah. And, and so there's more than enough examples about the fact that we don't mourn people equally in Canada. More than enough examples. Like it's it's like it's just sucks that we even have to go through them, right? But it's like two weeks later the van attack. Same That's true. Yeah. Um and and the van and and then you're like, okay, so then what do you give money for in something like this? You can't replace someone who's been gone with money. So then it's like, are you, you're giving money to their family, to the, to to them to get by, like in the van attack situation, there's a, a single mother whose ch- child is orphaned, right? Money for that. And they couldn't raise a, bit, a half. They couldn't raise a quarter of what was raised for the, for the, for the tragedy in Humboldt. And so these are the kinds of questions that you don't ask the parents of a victim or the friends of a victim to contend with. I I would never ask, I'm not putting this in front of the faces of people in that community who are still mourning and who are still suffering and who who survived, who are still suffering to, to get past this. That's not, that's not their issue. But as cultural critics, as critics of power, as people who question how Canada has been formed and how Canada operates, these are absolutely important questions for us to ask. And no one should be getting hate or heat for throwing these questions out there because these are important. These these are these these are these cut to the fundamental questions of what it's like to be a Canadian and to live at a less than or more than level of the status quo. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's very important. So, um, I'm surprised Warren Kinsella isn't our misogynist of the week, but he was too regional. I feel like Albertans wouldn't get it. <laughs> well, you know what? He's a law or professor. Or people from BC Fucking or something like that. Kinsella teaches law in uh, the University of Calgary. So shut the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. Yeah. So that's unfortunately that guy's reach goes a little bit beyond um, the gilded palace of uh, Ontario politics. This week, he proved that he really just wants to put the boots to someone's neck who doesn't like for some reason. I've never even interacted with him. Right. Like, again, this was my partner that was in touch with him. I have never interacted with him beyond maybe two or three Twitter exchanges in a decade. So um, basically, fuck you. Fuck you for hating me for some fucking reason to an extent that I don't really didn't hate him. <laughs> like I just thought he was a guy, right? And um and yeah, and fuck you for for showing the world uh your private correspondence because I can handle it, my partner can handle it, but fucking god forbid we couldn't have, right? God forbid we I were just people thought that who was trashy. That. I Super thought it was trashy. Totally. Totally. All right. So, you got one? Huh? You got one. You've got a rant and a receipt. I got a rant. Okay. So you know what? I'm going to go back to identity. By the way, somebody somebody tweeted me. And see, here's, here's a good example. We're going to move into mine. But here's a good example just picking up from yours. Somebody tweeted me, um, da-da-da-da-da, something, something, identity politics is um, ruining whatever. And I didn't actually excoriate this person. We actually had a conversation and I basically told him, I was like, all politics is identity politics. Yes. Um, if, if you're a conservative, that's an identity. If you're a liberal, that's an identity. If you're progressive, that's an identity. That's the basis of politics is identity. So the question is, whose identity is allowed and whose identity deserves ridicule and excoriation. Right. So my rant has to do with the Australian government sort of trying to figure out, figure that out. Right. So two, uh, two Aboriginal men were, have been held in immigration detention and will ask the high court of Australia um, to find that Aboriginal non-citizens cannot be deported in this landmark case, right? So Daniel Love, who was born in Papua New Guinea to an Aboriginal Australian father and a Papua New Guinea Guinean mother, moved to Australia when he was five. Um, and the, the other man, Brendan Toms, who was born in New Zealand to an Australian Aboriginal mother and a New Zealand father, moved to Australia at six. So both are identified and recognized as Aboriginal in the Australian sense. Mm. Love is a member of the, I'm going to say a name. We know how this will turn out. Okay. Camilla Roy. Camilla Roy people. And Tom's is a member of the Gungari people and also holds native title. Both are also fathers to Australian children. So basically you've got two Aboriginal people who have lived in Australia an overwhelmingly majority of their lives 
who were born overseas, so they don't hold Australian citizenship. And I'm using air quotes in that Australian citizenship. Mm. So the the question the high court is trying to answer is whether a a person in that position is a member of the constitutional community in Australia, despite not holding status that's statutory citizenship. And we go back to the idea of community here, which is why I went like over the top on it in like this week in feminism. Mm. So a victory would recognize that Aboriginal people cannot be regarded as not belonging to and within the community, even though this may be the case. Um, the high court would deem them as non-citizens, but non-deportable. Sorry, non-alien non-citizens. This is a problem because um, a non-citizen non-alien would not be able to vote, serve on a jury, or, or apply for certain public service jobs, but they also would not be deported. Now, this is my problem. Well, there are a lot of problems in this entire idea of who belongs to the land. And the idea that a, an, a settler colony can separate you from your land, which is separating you from your identity, okay, is exactly the problem I have here. The community has invited you into, you know, like citizenship of their own, right? And the community has accepted you as one of theirs. Therefore, you should have the rights that that community holds. It is not up to, in my opinion, Australian law to determine who is and who is not a part of that community. And that's my problem. Well, it, it actually shows how ridiculous the Western uh, understanding of citizenship really is. I mean, like, can you imagine a system as ridiculous as saying like, OK, well, you're not a citizen, but you can stay, but you can't stay and you can sit on juries, but you can't sit on juries, but you can do this and you can't do that. It's like, guys, <laughs> like your entire nation is built on top of another nation. Yeah. And you are controlling and identifying the identity of the majority through these test cases of minority individuals, whether they are like original claimants to the land or whether they are on Nauru Island, right? The worst refugee crisis in the world is being administered by Australia right now, where like children are committing suicide because the conditions are so horrible and yeah. like you can't get to it easily. Like you have to get it to it through the Australian government. I mean, like, all of these, all the Western states, right? The United States and Canada and, and Australia, like it feels like we are falling apart. And as we're falling apart, we're clinging to the most absurd ways to police and control what we understand, we, the majority, white majority, understand as being identity in our in our nations. That's right. The, the white majority is policing identity. And they have no, they have no background or right to police identity. And this is what, like, like 
it's funny how much like doesn't get me upset, but I never know what's going to get me upset. This (laughs) got me upset. Right. And it's this, it is, this is exactly what colonialism and privilege and power and all of those things wrapped up mean. This is exactly what white supremacy is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, White supremacy is not about Nazis. The Nazis are only an outcome of the state, the settler state, the white majority state policing who can and cannot be a part of that community because a state is still a community of people. And the fact that the white settler colonial state who themselves like Australia was colonized, but by people whose rights have been stripped from them too. Right. Right. So the fact that they are using their sort of their hegemony to basically throw people off the land and land is something by which identity first derives land, community, family. Those are the three things associated with identity that that forms our identity right so the like basically when you strip people of their identity which is what happened which is exactly what genocide does was exactly what residential schools did exactly what slavery did there's a reason that those are systemic ways of subjugating people and for people to then go around and say that identity is basically um oh well it's just crowded it's just it's just fucking up our politics it's like what yeah like what? Like, you know what I mean? So I'm just like, I'm just upset by this whole notion of this whole trial. And especially when it comes to Aboriginal people for whom this is their land. It's funny because basically Game of Thrones is basically a a show about identity. Right. And identity, family, and the land. You don't have king of you don't have a southerner claiming king, king of the north for a reason. Okay? It's because they're not tied to that land. You have the reason that the Israelis and the Palestinians are fighting is because this is a majority this isn't an identity issue. It is about community. It is about ancestry. It is about the land. Mhm. And who that land belongs to. So for those of us who are part of a diaspora, we're like, what the fuck? Yeah, like it's it just feels like it's it's all around us. Right. Because you you while you're explaining this, I was thinking of the exchange this week between Christian Freeland and Leo Husakis, uh, a senator about white supremacy. Carry on. Do you want to give us like a bit of a recap? Because I think I yeah, I mean, I didn't totally listen to it because I, I fucking couldn't care less about what either of them think about white supremacy. But, I yeah. mean, you know, Christian Freeland is talking about how we need to be worried about the rise of the far right and people talking about white supremacy, blah, blah, blah. And then tried to whatever she got. On, she just got onto this file. So what's she talking about? Oh, no, seriously. And it's also like, hey, can you fucking shut up, Christia? Like, I know they're bringing you back out because you're popular and the rest of your party isn't. But like, we see what's going on. <laughs> right? Yeah. 
Um, but so she was saying this and that and making connections between the far right and the conservative party. I, because- I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry. Let me can I let me just interject. Wasn't her family like Nazi sympathizers? Oh no no Nazis. <laughs> Like, oh, full, shit. Full, full, I, I believe her grandfather ran a Nazi newspaper, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so what the fuck? I, you know what? I don't want to listen to Christian Freeland fucking, um, you know, uh, hammering me about about white supremacy when she literally just got here and her family is a bunch of Nazis. But carry on. Well, that's the thing, right? It's like, OK, you know, you can repent for your family's past sins for sure. Like, that's possible. But you have to repent <laughs> like you can't yeah. do shit and then be all like i'm not a nazi um not and then just, shut the fuck up yeah yeah and 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 leave place for other people to make these comments anyway so so this is in a committee exchange and so she's saying this stuff about um about the far right and then leo hosakis who's a conservative senator who's odious i find by the way he uh-huh. was the, uh, he was and and i should just say in case this makes it onto the tape while i'm talking i have two little kids behind me uh, who are ready for bed and um, they might speak up. <laughs> so sorry about that. That's but, fine. And one of them just farted. Are you kidding me? In my booth? Okay. Um, Leo is was like vehemently denying the existence of white supremacy with the extent, exception of like it really extreme, extreme manifestations of that. And it's like, are you, are you fucking kidding me? I'm like, the Senate exists in Canada to maintain white supremacy. Period. Like, you exist as a senator because of white supremacy. You have your job as a senator because of white supremacy. Christian Freeland is there because of white supremacy. Like, like the entire government is there because of white supremacy. And you two are going to have a fucking debate about it? Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, this is just so white. It's so white. <laughs> I mean, like, you might as well pour mayonnaise on it and eat it for fucking brunch, right? Yeah, exactly. With like a hot dog, yeah, and craft macaroni <laughs> and cheese. Yeah, <laughs> it's it, it, and this is the and this is this is the state of our discourse, right? And so you know your 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 rant about what's going on in Australia, like the parallels to Canada are are obvious, right? And yeah, and you could easily imagine a situation where someone's an American citizen, but he's actually an, a, a citizen of of the Mohawk Nation, for example, where that nation crosses the border quite frequently, right? Yeah. Along the along the um, Ontario. New York border. We we have no idea how to get ourselves out of this colonial mindfuck. And rather than making things better, we make it worse year over year over year. And it sucks watching it get worse rather than get better. Precisely. All right, then. So that's our episode this week. Um, I want to, Nora, thank you for coming on and being you know, my partner in crime this week. Yeah. Thanks for the invitation. Um, where can people find you? Uh, when I'm not uh, being a mother fighting for my headset for my kids, which they've just taken from me. Um, you can find me at, uh, at Sandy Nora.com, uh, Sandy Nora talk politics. And you can find me in the Washington post or the national observer. Uh, and I'm at Twitter at no lore N O L O R E. And you can find Bad and Bitchy on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Bad and B podcast, Twitter at Bad and Bitchy, Instagram at Bad and Bitchy pod, 
email us with your love notes and your hate and we will respond. But if it's hate, you might not like the way we respond. (laughs) (laughs) Badandbepod at gmail.com. Subscribe to our... Wait, do you guys have a Patreon? We do. Yep. Yep. Go check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Sandy and Nora. And ours is patreon.com slash bad and bitchy. And we got merch, everybody, at Redbubble, redbubble.com slash people slash bad and bitchy. Oh, Nora. Yes. Um, you have to say bye with me, okay? Okay. One, cool. two, three. Bye. bye. <laughs> <laughs> Almost on tune, eh? You're in tune. Um, I have a kid who here wants to say something. Can he say something? Sure. Okay, go real. Say it. Say it. No, you can say it. Flash. Flash. <laughs> that was cute. <laughs> okay. That was cute. I better get these two little munchkins to bed. My bitch is bad and bullshit. <laughs>